Okay, I guess uh, I've interviewed you about what's on in Ohio. You, you can interview me about something I've never seen but know something about. Not <laughs> yeah. really much. Well, well, can you just first say uh, who you are and how you are related to this whole thing? Okay. Uh, my name is Richard Wharton Reagan, R-E-G-E-N, German for rain. I am connected to Robert Iver in this way. In the first episode of this podcast, we looked at Man and Wolf, an anthropological interpretation of sadism, masochism, and lycanthropy, which I found in a used bookstore in Ann Arbor, Michigan, 10 years ago, and which led me down the long and twisted path that ends with this podcast. Today, we're going to shift our attention to the author of that book, Robert Isaac Eisler. How did a nice Jewish boy from Vienna grow up to write a book about werewolves, serial killers, and the Marquis de Sade? Well, we'll get there. But first, we need to understand where it all begins. The time and the place that shaped Eisler's development. The intellectual trends and big ideas that influenced his fascinating, but also bizarre, way of thinking. And any formative events in his early life that we can dig up. I'm Brian Collins, and this is A Very Square Peg, a podcast about Robert Eisler. This is episode number two, Value Theory and the Case of the Missing Codex. The oldest of four children, Robert Eisler was born in Vienna on April 27, 1882, to Friedrich Fritz Eisler, an immigrant from Bohemia, now Czech Republic, and Vienna native Melanie Reitzis. His father Friedrich was a partner in the manufacturing firm Spieler and Eisler, whose combs, brushes, pyramids of whalebone, and barber and hairdresser tools won awards at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. His mother's family, the Reitzes, had made a fortune of their own investing abroad in the American Transcontinental Railroad in the 1840s and owned an estate in the wealthy Jewish enclave of Frankfurt am Main, home of the famous Rothschild family. To get a clearer picture of Eisler's place of origin, I talked to Stephen Beller, who is an expert on Austrian, Jewish, and Central European history. He's the author of A Concise History of Austria, Anti-Semitism, A Very Short Introduction, and Vienna and the Jews, 1867 to 1938, A Cultural History. He's also the editor of Rethinking Vienna, 1900. Turn of the Century Vienna gave us Freud, Wittgenstein, Ernst Mach, and so many other groundbreaking thinkers that was basically the center of the world intellectually. I asked Stephen what it was that made Vienna so special. Well, I don't think it's, a, it's any one thing. I mean, Vienna was, was always a very important uh, European city. After Paris, it was one of the main centers of culture on the continent for centuries. It was more musical and kind of medical than it was intellectual. But nonetheless, there is a tradition of you know, of Viennese culture, obviously, uh, and it was a big city, and it was the capital of a major empire. That said, at least in the 19th century, it, it had not been well known for great intellectual achievement, partly because it had been a somewhat oppressive regime in terms of liberalism and kind of the, the more progressive kind of political movements of the 19th century, right up until basically the, the last third of the 19th century. However, at that point, it starts taking off intellectually and culturally 
And one of the reasons is it gained a very large Jewish bourgeoisie. And like the kind of the native bourgeoisie, if you like, or the native uh, population of Vienna, which, which tended to be somewhat conservative and Catholic, the emancipatory Jewish bourgeoisie that comes to Vienna, that comes to Vienna as, ironically, as what they see as the capital of German liberal culture, they come looking to make careers in the law, in journalism, in medicine, and so on and so forth. And they do that, but then they come across the fact there's a reaction to their, their, their success in Vienna in the, the emergence of a very strong anti-Semitic movement. And I think it's in this reaction between the wish for newly modernized, as it were, Jewish bourgeoisie to enter and integrate and, and take part in, participate in modern culture, as they saw it, like this great kind of enlightenment project. It's the combination with that, with this suddenly being kind of confronted with the fact that this future of progress, enlightenment, and so on, wasn't quite what it appeared, that led to people like Freud and so on, seeing the underbelly of this kind of positive, progressive, enlightened version of what modernity was. And a lot of what the achievement of Vienna 1900 is, is, is this ability to look below the surface of modernity from a modern perspective. And to see the limits of, of, of modernity, but hoping that this will help the modern project of enlightenment, emancipation, and so forth. As we have already seen and will continue to see over the course of this podcast, this describes Robert Eisler's intellectual development to a T. Eisler's family seems to have been pretty typical of turn-of-the-century Vienna, with a father who was a Czech Jew who had come to the city to increase his prospects, and a mother from a wealthy Jewish banking family. It's hard to get much more specific than that without uncovering some new documents. We do have one clue about what Eisler's teenage years were like, but it's not much. The Warburg Institute in London has an unpublished essay of Eisler's from 1898 called Phenomenal Values, Attempt at a Scientific Aesthetics. The essay covers six handwritten notebooks, and in the front, there's a dedication to his mother and a picture of the 16-year-old Eisler, all decked out in Victorian fancy dress and looking very upper middle class. Like many other Jewish boys at the time, Eisler was sent to a gymnasium, a kind of school that prepares you for a university. As Stephen explains, education was one of the ways Jewish boys tried to fit into Vienna's bourgeoisie. Something like 50% of, of Jewish boys were going to want either the gymnasium or the Realschule, which is kind of the two forms of higher level secondary education in Vienna, which is remarkable because only about 10 to 15% of the general population of boys were going to those kind of higher level secondary schools. The question is, is that because they're middle class or is that because they're sending their kids because as it were, they have middle class, bourgeois ambitions, pretensions, values? It's very difficult to tell, but certainly whatever the reason, there was a very strong Jewish drive to send your kid to the higher level of, of, of education in Vienna. After gymnasium, Eisler attended the University of Vienna, where he explored his interest in what he later referred to as archaeological and philosophical problems. His earliest scholarly work was written when he was a student there. It was a book of five essays produced from 1899 to 1901 and published as Studies in Value Theory in 1902. My limited knowledge of philosophy did not extend to this little corner of the discipline when I started researching Eisler. So, to find out more about value theory, I talked to Professor Tom Herka, the Chancellor Henry N. R. Jackman Distinguished Professor of Philosophical Studies at the University of Toronto. First, I asked him to try to explain what the term even refers to, and it's deceptively simple. 
So I understand by value theory the study of which which things, which states of affairs ultimately are in themselves desirable or worth pursuing or good or valuable. So, you know, we might think that pleasure is a good thing. That's a claim in value theory. Pain is a bad thing. That's a claim in value theory. We might also think that knowledge is a good thing. Achievement is a good thing. Being a morally good person is a good thing. These are all claims in value theory. Also, you might think that equality, people's being equally happy is a good thing. People's getting what they deserve is a good thing. The survival of certain rich ecosystems. Some people think that's a good thing. So that's the those are the kind of claims that are made in value theory about which things are good and worth preserving and try to bring about and aim at and so on. Let's listen to a bit of a lecture Eisler gave on February 10th, 1902, when he was just 18 years old. Now, there's none of the conversational tone we find in Eisler's later work here. At this young age, Eisler was imitating his teachers and writing in the very terse and jargony style of the day. And while he's working in the realm of value theory, his primary interest here is the implications of value theory for aesthetic philosophy, and especially for art criticism and art history. Theses from the lecture, The Epistemology of Aesthetic Criticism, held on 10 February 1902 by Robert Eisler. Grounding of Value Theoretical Subjectivism A. Equal objects are evaluated differently by different subjects. Reason? Historical development is not straightforward. B. Continuous relatively constant values do not prove anything against the subjective dependence of the values since they are dependent on relative constant properties of the value subject. Result. The values depend both on the nature of the value object and on that of the value subject. Conflicting value judgments would refer to the same objects, but different subjects are compatible. Therefore, a decision as to the difference in valuation is pointless. I'm going to jump in here and break this down, which is strange because this is meant to be the simplest and most straightforward presentation of Eisler's theories. Some parts of it are a little opaque, though. The sentence about relatively constant values not proving anything basically says that something may be held to have value over a long period of time, like the music of Bach, but that shouldn't be taken as evidence that it has some kind of absolute value. Instead, the consistency over time is because the criteria by which we judge music has been pretty consistent. But it's also possible that tastes change over time, which is what he means by historical development. This brings me to Eisler's notion of the difference between historical facts, like the sheet music of Bach, and phenomenal facts, like one person's experience of listening to Bach. Eisler calls a historical fact anything that is different from the way it would be in a world without intelligent life. Now, if I'm reading this right, and there's no guarantee that I am, because if you describe my German as rusty, you would be doing me a kindness, and as far as I know, no one has read Eisler's stuff in a hundred years. The logic here is that because a thing has been changed in some way, it points to a deliberate action on the part of some biological organism. Every intentional change in the world due to the voluntary actions of an organism, every historical fact, is evidence that an organism wanted or placed value on something. That means a historical fact could be a language, an art object, an empire, or even an anthill. Well, I think it sounds to me, and I haven't read Eisler, so I'm guessing, but it sounds to me as if he's a subjectivist. He thinks yes. that what's good is, you know, what satisfies your desire or, or you know, if 
It doesn't have to be desired. If there's some process that is aiming towards some end, then you can say, once you understand the process, you see what the end is, and the end that it's aiming at is what's good. So, you know, a plant doesn't desire to grow. But if you look at a plant, you can see that everything it's doing is tending to make it grow. And then you can say, okay, the good for a plant is to achieve the end that it's directed towards. And in human beings, our directedness towards ends takes the form of desire. So, you know, what's good for us depends on what we desire. And that sounds to me like what he's saying. He's saying, look, once you understand that the good is, you know, the object of striving or what something's tending towards or what it wants, then you can analytically determine what's good by understanding what it's tending towards or desires or anything like that. Eisler is defining things in this weird way because, oddly enough, in his mind, he is giving us the simplest explanation for what value is. He wants to explain value without having to get into people's heads and understand why they want what they want, or having to rank everything in the world on the scale from best to worst. Heiser's idea of value is that it can be understood simply by observing what people do, by looking at historical facts. It's important to understand that for Eisler, there are no positive and negative values, but only value and disvalue, or lack of value. Things have value when some organism wants to have or do them, and in having or doing them changes them in some way. So, for instance, if you put a pile of books on a table with a sign that read free books and then came back an hour later, the books that were gone would have had value and the books that were still there would have had disvalue. This does not mean that the books that had been taken had some absolute inherent value and the books that were left on the table didn't. The books that were left on the table were left because a person who wanted them had not walked by in the last hour. Value is not an absolute characteristic of an object, but a relationship between an object and a subject. Later on, we'll see that he uses the term utility and disutility to describe this relationship. Now let's get back to Eisler's theses on the epistemology of aesthetic criticism. Truth and untruth in the corrective sense refer only to the agreement of the statement with the phenomenal value of the theoretical facts, not to the relation of the phenomenal fact to a real property of an absolute being. The value judgment is a purely descriptive statement. The more than descriptive, value-creating meaning which the value-theoretical intellectual assigns to it is not justified. Here, Eisler is explaining that if you say something has value, what you're really saying is that some organism has at some time wanted it, not that it has some inherent absolute value in and of itself. And when it comes to a value judgment, like an aesthetic judgment, you can't say that something is beautiful, only that it was once beautiful to someone. More importantly, you can't say that some art is more inherently beautiful than other art, either by coming right out and saying it, or by coming out with a scheme in which some kinds of art are primitive and others are advanced. Eisler makes it clear that technological innovation does not add value. Now this all gets more complicated when you move from the relatively simple level of describing objects to describing states of affairs. This term is associated with the writing of Franz Brentano, who was a former Catholic priest and philosopher of mind whose lectures on intentionality and empirical psychology influenced a whole generation of scholars, including Freud. I have a hard time following Brentano's arguments myself, so I asked Professor Herka to explain exactly what a state of affairs is. Again, it sounded too simple. Well, it's, it's what's expressed by a that clause. That you're happy. That's a state of affairs. That it's Friday. 
that the sun will rise tomorrow. Those are states of affairs. Not everybody thinks this, but in the current Brentano-inspired literature, this is very much the view, that the primary bearers of value are states of affairs. So when you say pleasure is good, what you mean is that people's experiencing pleasure is good. The state of affairs in which someone feels pleasure, that's what's good. So we say knowledge is good. What that really means is that somebody has knowledge. That's what's a good thing. Here's where Eisler actually does think that you can rank values in some absolute way by looking at a given state of affairs in relation to the state of affairs that preceded it. Eisler says that all else being equal, any change in a state of affairs can only have occurred as an act of will or volition. He seems to think that all states of affairs, which are historical facts, by which he means that they presuppose an act of volition by an organism, can be traced back to some relationship of utility or disutility. Now, this basically makes sense to me. If something has changed from the way that it would otherwise be, it's because someone changed it, and if they changed it, then they had a reason for changing it. The problem with this argument is that it doesn't seem to account for unintentional actions. So going back to our example of the books being left on the table with the free book sign, it's possible that somebody walked by and snagged a book on the zipper of their coat and accidentally pulled it along and didn't know what they were doing. So then we would have imputed value to that book, even though there was no intention in it being taken from the table. It was purely an accident. How does that fit in? Anyway... Here's Tom Herka again, explaining how Eisler's idea of volition differs from other ways of thinking about volition that presuppose some inherent value in things that are good, rather than just a value relation of utility, which is what Eisler presupposes. So most people think that, that if something is good, then it ought to be the object of the will. So you ought to want what's good, and you ought to want to avoid what's bad. You know, there's a tradition in philosophy that says that all desire and all volition are aimed at what you think is good. So that it's just part of desiring something that you think of it as in some way good. And that you're willing something involves your thinking of it as some way good. Now, so on that picture, thoughts about goodness are involved in volition. Now, it doesn't follow that whatever you want is in fact good. I mean, if people are objective, they say, no, no, whatever you want, you want because you think it's good, um, but you might be wrong about what's good. So what you're wanting is not in fact good, but really, given that what you wanted was something good, you won't actually get what you want unless what you get is truly good. I mean, that goes back to Socrates. Socrates famously thought that everybody wants the good, and if they choose the bad, it's only because they're mistaken about what really is good. That's the Socratic paradox. Philosophers today, I think that's a crazy view um, about the nature of volition. But I have colleagues in my philosophy department who write articles and books defending that idea. The alternative is, no, no, desire, you might sometimes desire things because you think they're good, but a lot of desires are, don't involve any thoughts about goodness. You just want a peanut butter sandwich. Now the question is, if we don't desire things because they are good, why do we desire them at all? One explanation is hedonism, the idea that we want what brings us pleasure and avoid what brings us pain. But there are a lot of problems with this, and Eisler basically rejected it. In fact, 50 years after studies in value theory, Eisler returned once more to the idea of hedonism in Man and a Wolf. He even referred back to one of his very early other works from 1904, The Will to Pain, 
where he coined the term algobulia to describe what most people today would know as masochism, something which a hedonist would see as a paradox, but which he doesn't. Eisler explains. The truth of the matter is that the hedonistic theory of motivation is equivalent to the absurd belief of a person so deluded as to think that the power which drives motor vehicles through our streets or stops them at the crossings is provided by the rays emanating from the red and green traffic lights. If we adopt Munsterberg's and William James's more plausible view that emotions are complexes of somatic sensations resulting from the motor and vasomotor, volitional or cognitive reactions of our body to its environment, pleasure and pain are seen to be nothing but the signals, green or red, as it were, informing us of the positive or negative measures of our organism's adaptations to its spatio-temporal environment or to the particular constituent parts of it, in other words, of the utility or disutility utility of everything relevant to our survival and to our free or hampered expansion of our lives. What you quote from Eisler is a kind of a desire theorist's objection to hedonism, because hedonism says, look, pleasure is good regardless of whether you want pleasure, and pain is bad rather regardless of whether you're averse to it. Now, hedonists have tended to think everybody wants pleasure and everybody's averse to pain, but that's not always true. And I think, as you report Eisler, he's saying, look, hedonism is saying that pain is a bad thing for you, even if you want it. And I think he's proposing that, no, what determines value is your desires and preferences. And if you happen to want a form of discomfort, then you're getting that discomfort is a good thing because it's giving you what you want. And the hedonists are wrong to say it's a bad thing. So... That's really showing that hedonism in a classical form is an objective theory rather than a subjective theory, even though it's often lumped, associated with subjective theories. But it really is objective because it's saying certain qualities of sensation are good regardless of whether you want them, though most people do want them, and certain qualities of sensation are bad regardless of whether you want to avoid them, even though most people want to avoid them. But what if there's some other reason why people seek out the quality of sensation we call pain? Eisler suggests that the desire for pain might have an evolutionary basis. It may be that a certain amount of masochism is needed to help keep our pain receptors in good working order. If you think about it, it's much more important to feel pain accurately than it is to feel pleasure, because pain tends to be the signal that you need to do something immediately, like take your hand off a hot stove to avoid grievous bodily injury. Here's how Eisler puts it. If pleasure and pain are such plus or minus signals conveyed to us by our somatic sensations, there must be some sort of sense organ, presumably the sympathetic nervous system, for receiving and conveying this vitally necessary information to the reacting center. In the absence of stimuli, the sense organ would be subject to atrophy and degeneration. Just as the eyes of the little reptile Proteus Anguineus Laurenti living in the dark underground caves and subterranean rivers of the Carso have become blind through absence of light. Because a sense organ degenerates by atrophy in the absence of the specific stimuli to which it reacts, every sense organ may be said to stand in need of functional exercise no less than every muscle of our body. Since it is as vitally necessary for an organism to experience pain as to enjoy pleasure, perhaps even more vital for it to be aware of dissatisfaction than of satisfaction to be speedily informed of a lack adaptation rather than of its perfected achievement, which has to retain quite possibly by mere inaction, the organisms for sensing pain need a minimum of stimulation just as much as those do for sensing pleasure. 
According to Eisler, an evolutionary impulse for an organism to seek out pain can also be found at the level of a society, which explains the role played by the theater of tragedy in 5th century Athens and Elizabethan England. If an individual or a society is well enough adapted to its environment to feel moderately happy in this world, as Athens seems to have been in the days when she gave birth to the incomparable majesty of Greek tragedy or Elizabeth in England in the time of Shakespeare and his rivals, the need for experiencing, by sympathy, the sufferings of their less fortunate fellow creatures will be imperiously felt by a number of wealthy and happy citizens large enough to support the production of tragic drama and to accept the works of art which present or recall subjects having a painful connotation. Nor is high tragedy, the spectacle of great suffering nobly born, the only means of satisfying the need to stimulate our organs of pain perception. The crowds, attracted by the piteous, often sordid spectacle of real catastrophe or witnessing the horrors of bullfights, boxing matches, or the gladiatorial performances of the ancient Roman circus. The girl so well known to me years ago, who followed every funeral she could just to have a good cry in sympathy with the bereaved. The other, now a major poet in my native language, who, in her young days remembering Anderson's tale of the princess and the pea, put pebbles into her shoes so as to feel a bodily pain to balance her mental suffering, and who in these years loved nothing so much as pain, or the insensitive hysteric who burns the back of her hands with glowing cigarette stubs or matchens, all bear witness to a felt need for experiencing pain not, of course, exceeding a certain varying limit of intensity. This limit can be raised to an astonishing height in cases where the desire for self-torture is reinforced by the strong mystical motives at the bottom of the various forms of religious asceticism. In this passage, Eisler makes a jump from the controlled vicarious suffering of a spectator who empathizes with the character in a tragic play to someone who seeks out physical pain for one reason or another. And I would love to know which of his female friends made a hobby of attending funerals. For one thing, it would add another female character to this story. Right now, there's only his mother and his wife. But let's turn away from the question of pleasure and pain for now and get back to what Eisler was actually writing about in 1902, and that was the philosophy of art which was quickly turning into the focus of Eisler's thinking and work. After he graduated with his doctorate in economics in 1902, Eisler went to Rome and Athens to study art history and archaeology. He published his first article on art history in 1903, and around 1904, he traveled through the Mediterranean visiting museums and archaeological sites like Knossos, Ephesus, and Miletus. When he returned to Austria in 1905, he took a second doctorate under two extremely significant art historians. Alois Regal, and Franz Vickhoff at the University of Vienna Institute of Art History. During his degree, he wrote a dissertation titled The History of Decorative Landscape Painting. He was especially concerned with undermining any basis for evaluating art as good or bad or even primitive. Here is how he concluded his theses on the epistemology of art criticism. The establishment of rational norms, e.g. normative aesthetics, is epistemologically unjustifiable. The validity of the dynamic norms is historical-sociological. It is not justified by logic. Beautiful is what somebody actually likes or at any time liked. Any aesthetic theory that contains a negative critique in its presuppositions is therefore considered inadequate because it is based on incomplete material. Any such theory that leads its consequences to a negative critique is wrong because it contradicts given facts of experience. In 1908, Eisler married Rosalia Lilly von Palsinger, who was an Austrian baroness and the daughter of the famous landscape painter Franz von Palsinger. 
The inclusion of Fawn in a name is a mark of nobility, and I'd assumed when I first started looking into Eisler's personal life that the Von Palsingers must have been some ancient aristocratic family, but Stephen Beller didn't think so. I suspect that it was relatively recent, and it was, it was because of his services to art. That probably meant that in terms of where the money was in the relationship, Eisler had more than his wife did. But it was often the case that the Jewish partner would, would convert to Catholicism. The other thing about Austrian law and conversion and so on is that you couldn't have a, a two-religion household. You couldn't have a marriage where someone was Jewish and someone was Catholic. There was no secular form of marriage. There was no civil marriage. In point of fact, Eisler's new father-in-law was known for having accompanied the crown prince Rudolf on his trip to the East in 1881. That was eight years before Rudolf died in a suicide pact with a 17-year-old mistress. Rudolf's death started the succession crisis that culminated with the assassination of the heir presumptive Archduke Franz Ferdinand by the Serbian Black Hand, which, as you know, was the event that set off the First World War. Eisler's sister-in-law, Elizabeth von Palsinger, translated the classic Swiss children's book Heidi into English and was married to the American poet, editor, and University of Pennsylvania professor Charles Wharton Stork. Their daughter, Rosalie, Eisler's niece, eventually moved to America and became a well-known Quaker leader and playwright. Lily Eisler herself would go on to outlive her husband by more than 30 years before dying in 1980 at the age of 98. One of the things I tried to do in researching Eisler was find some living relatives. That wasn't easy. Eisler never had children. His brother Otto was murdered in a concentration camp. His sisters had children, but I can't find anybody beyond that. However, his wife's family was a little easier to track down. In fact, his niece, Rosalie Reagan, was a Quaker activist in Philadelphia. And Swarthmore College holds her archives. I found at Swarthmore who her children were, and I actually contacted them through the internet. That's how I met, over the phone anyway, Richard Reagan, who lives in Washington, D.C. now. I talked to Rich for a long time about his family, the Von Palsingers, and he had a lot of information for me. My father was from a Viennese family and uh, came to America when he was around 20. I am connected to Robert Eisler in this way. My mother, Rosalie Stork Reagan, uh, was the eldest child of uh, Rachel von Posinger. Uh, her husband was Charles Wharton Stork. Rachel's real name was Elizabeth with an S. Her parents were Rosalie Hinterhuber and Franz von Posinger. Franz von Posinger lived from 1839 to 1915. His wife, Rosalie Hinterhuber, uh, was 1843 to 1935. Franz and Rosalie von had four children, four girls. They were all six years apart. The eldest was Helene, born in 1871 and died in 1956. She uh, never married, but she was in love, uh, as the family tells it, to a uh, Italian, I think, painter. And uh, he died early in life of something, and uh, 
she never married. The second one was Paula uh, von Posner, Erlewine. Paula was born in 1876 and died in 1959. She lived most of her life after age 30 or 35 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at my grandmother Liesel's house or nearby. Uh, she was a very fine painter, and almost everything she sold, everything she, she painted that was complete was sold. Uh, well, she was known as a countess uh, in, the, in the United States, but she was actually a baroness. The third child was Rosalia, who was known to all the family and virtually everything that I've seen, letters or anything, about her, from her, uh, was called Lily, L-I-L-I. She was born in 1882 and died in 1980. I saw her once at, in Otter at her uh, apartment or wherever she had there. I think she also lived in uh, Salisbury at that time, but I'm not sure, because it was in the summertime. And uh, I'm not sure if... She painted it or not, but I don't know of any. I've never seen any. I've had some people say that all four daughters were painters. Uh, and uh, my time with her, I just remember uh, being very cordial. Her English was quite good. She lived in uh, England for a long time with her husband, Robert Eisler. Eisler had converted to Roman Catholicism in order to get married but he already seemed to have abandoned Judaism for intellectual reasons. And I've never seen any evidence that his conversion was anything more than a matter of convenience. Eisler was nominally Christian, personally agnostic, and culturally Jewish. As we will see in a later episode, none of this will matter to the Nazis who take over Austria after Hitler annexes it. In fact, when Eisler is confined in a concentration camp, they will give Lily the choice of either divorcing him or losing all of her property. I asked Stephen Beller to talk about this phenomenon. One of the main reasons why there were so many relatively high Jewish conversions in Vienna, compared to, let's say, Berlin and so on, was if you wanted to marry a Catholic who didn't want to give up their religion, you had to either convert to Catholicism or give up your Jewish uh, religion and, and become confessionslos. At that point, you have a combination of religion and race. You get to a situation where a man of Jewish descent would have converted to Catholicism, but the Nazis would regard him as, as Jewish. So like Eisler, I suppose. And his wife would be Catholic and quote-unquote Aryan. Well, the Nazis tried their best to persuade the non-Jewish partner, whichever, whether it was wife or, or husband, to divorce their Jewish spouse with the promise that the non-Jewish spouse would be able to retain the property. Now, some of these divorces happened with the agreement of both parties. I know one instance where a, a Jewish lawyer in Linz, whose wife was not Jewish by race, divorced, and he, he left to Switzerland and spent the war in Switzerland. I think he remarried during the war. But the, in, the initial intent had been to get together once this horrible uh, crisis had passed. That's not what happened, but that's what the initial premise was. There are, however, also instances where the spouse was persuaded by the Nazis on racial grounds that the marriage was wrong, and, and they basically divorced the, the Jewish spouse without the kind of the agreement of the Jewish spouse. And that could, that could be very dangerous for the Jewish spouse. There was a lot of pressure on uh, mixed marriage couples to, to divorce from the Nazis. 
but remarkably few, and obviously the onus was on the non-Jewish spouse, very few non-Jewish spouses divorced their Jewish spouses. Now, before we get too far ahead, let's go back a little bit to 1907, the year before he got married, and take a close look at a series of questionable decisions that would create some far-reaching consequences for young Robert Eisler. In an essay titled The Empiric Basis of Moral Obligation, published in the year he died, 1949, Eisler wrote these words. The isolated individual can never be certain whether he is right or wrong, and not even whether he is sane and reasonable or insane and mad. You may take this from me, who have been not indeed in a lunatic asylum, but in the solitary confinement of the black bunker in a concentration camp for a time that seemed endless. The completely isolated individual hangs on precariously and only perilously to reason and sanity. Despite what he says here, Eisler does seem to have spent some time, if not in a lunatic asylum, then at least confined to a sanitarium. How he got there is the story we will look at for the rest of this episode. On June 9, 1907, Eisler was staying at the Croce de Malta Hotel in Udine, Italy. After eating breakfast, he left the hotel with his camera and went to the library of the Archbishop's Palace, where he met with the librarian, Don Niccolo Pojani. Eisler asked permission to photograph some of the library's codices, or bound volumes. Pojani agreed and laid out the requested volumes on a table. Pojani would later claim that as he was turning to put some of the codices back into their storage envelopes, he saw Eisler make a sudden movement out of the corner of his eye, but thought nothing of it at the time. After Eisler had finished taking photographs and left, Pojani noticed that a 14th century codex called the Virginis et Passionis, the most valuable one in the library, was missing and called the authorities to report a theft. The police picked up Eisler for questioning, upon which he produced a check for 5,000 lire to deposit as a guarantee that he had not stolen anything. When I first read this story, that struck me as a very strange response to being accused of theft. But anyway, after he was taken to the station, one policeman recognized Eisler as the same man who had asked him for directions to the post office earlier that day. The police then went to the post office, where they found the package Eisler had dropped off. It was addressed to Eisler's residence in Vienna and contained the missing codex. Meanwhile, after the policeman had left for the post office, Eisler, who was still being held at the station, grabbed a pen knife from a desk and stuck it into his own throat. The guards quickly got the knife away from him and took him to the hospital, where the wound, which must have been superficial, was dressed. When he was brought back to the police station, Eisler confessed to taking the codex, but claimed that he had been compelled to commit the crime by an unconscious and irresistible force. After this confession, Eisler was confined to await trial, and as a foreigner, he was held without bail. In his jail cell one night, Eisler broke a bottle of disinfectant and tried to slash his left wrist with a shard of glass. He was stitched up again by a doctor, who also diagnosed Eisler with malaria. On June 21st, the following article appeared in the Turin newspaper La Stampa, 
describing the incident. Bibliomaniac arrested in Udine. Received by telegraph from Udine, 11 p.m. The young Austrian arrested for the theft of the precious codex in our museum is called Eisler and has been in Italy since the last March and was about to return to Vienna. Today, the prosecutor of the king, Trebucci, made him undergo two interrogations, during which Eisler was very pained, although the previous desperation was somewhat calmed. He still wears a bandage on his wrist that he injured in a suicide attempt in prison. In the afternoon, he received a visit from a friend of his, a certain Meyer, a student of literature at the University of Florence. Eisler repeated to his friend that he could not explain why he had carried out the theft. Today, Eisler's baggage has been opened, and nothing compromising was found. The papers found contained notes and sketches all in his own hand. We still do not know if it will be possible to proceed against Eisler by direct summons, and the information requested from the Austrian police is expected. Eisler retained a local attorney named Druisi to represent him, and must have also contacted his mother because she arrived shortly thereafter with Eisler's friend, a lecturer, or a student, accounts vary, at the University of Florence named Augusto Meyer. Around the same time, a telegram came from Vienna informing the authorities that Eisler was implicated in a second Italian scandal, having been caught earlier in his travels with a pornographic photograph in Trieste. Of course, Melanie Eisler insisted that all that was being said about her son was false, and the so-called pornography was merely a woman's portrait. On June 14th, the Italian philosopher of aesthetics Benedetto Croce wrote to Eisler in jail and told him to take courage, offering to testify in his defense. Croce also wrote a letter to his colleague Giovanni Gentile, in which he characterized Eisler's actions as, quote, a real stroke of madness in a truly distinguished young man in all respects, end quote. At his trial on June 19th, Eisler, speaking Italian, confessed to having taken the codex, but he blamed the librarian for his negligence and letting him do it. Needless to say, this caused quite a bit of outrage in the courtroom. The prosecutor also produced evidence that Eisler had previously been suspected of bookkeeping irregularities at another library in Vienna and had once been stopped for suspicious activities at the Vienna Art Museum. A character witness testifying in Eisler's defense, the soon-to-be famous Austrian poet and librettist Hugo von Hofmannsthal, told the judge that he had a lot of imagination and great talent, but also possessed an excitable and nervous nature, and was a quote-unquote pessimist. The Stampa covered the end of the trial. The conviction of the author of the failed theft of the Udine Codex Received by telegraph from Udine at 10.35 p.m. Tonight ended the trial against the Viennese Dr. Eisler for the well-known theft of the precious 14th century codex from the Archiepiscopal Library. The psychiatric experts argued that Eisler acted at a time when his brain mechanism worked imperfectly due to intellectual exhaustion, aggravated by the long journey by rail, made during a sleepless night. The public prosecutor, Dr. Ferrari, argued that this was an aggravated theft and proposed, starting with a minimum of six months' imprisonment, to reduce them to five for mitigating circumstances, with the benefit of forgiveness. 
The court sentenced Eisler to 30 days for simple theft, granting pardon, subject to payment of expenses. Eisler, at the reading of the sentence, was seized with a swoon. Soon, however, he recovered, and the Carabinieri brought him back to jail at the disposal of the Public Security Authority, since he was a foreigner. His mother, who had come from Vienna, and his friend, Dr. Meyer, who lived in Florence to study philology, visited him in prison. In the end, Eisler was allowed to pay his court costs and avoid jail time so that his family could take him to a sanitarium in nearby Gorizia. The story had gotten around, though, even appearing in a Polish newspaper in Chicago. But what are we now to make of this bizarre story? Why did a man who would go on to win medals for his courage in battle and endure a brutal regime of forced labor in Nazi concentration camps make two suicide attempts when charged with a relatively minor crime? The preservation of his honor is a possible motive, but this seems out of character, as you'll see from what happens in later episodes. So what happened? Did he have a mental breakdown? Could he have had cerebral malaria, like the doctor said, and been experiencing the kind of personality change observed among others exposed to this illness, like British troops in India and American soldiers in Vietnam? And most importantly, why did he even take the codex in the first place? Accounts of this have varied widely over the years. In an entry from his diary, the Romanian historian of religion, Maciej Eliadi, talks about what the psychoanalyst Carl Jung told him decades after the fact in 1953. Jung tells me about something that happened to Robert Eisler when he was a young man. He had come to Vienna to examine a codex at the Ambrosiana, and he stole it. All the frontier posts were alerted, and he was arrested on the train with the codex in his pocket. Before the commissioner of police, he declared that while he was at the library, he had received a telegram from his mistress in Vienna informing him that she was leaving him. Eisler said he had been so shocked that he put the codex in his pocket and left immediately for the station without even going to the hotel first. This theft and arrest provoked a scandal, even in Vienna, Jung adds in conclusion. Since Eliade was just writing this for himself in his diary, he probably would not have cared too much about correcting the mistake. So I should point out that the Ambrosiana is actually in Milan, not in Vienna or even in Udine. This version of events also leaves out the fact that the codex was found in the post office in a box addressed to Eisler's house in Vienna. And the whole thing about his mistress is a total mystery to me. Let's look at another version of this story for comparison. In 1922, 30 years before Jung's recollection to Eliade, but still 15 years after the events in question, Mary Varberg reported another version of the incident in a letter to her husband, the art historian A.B. Varberg, who did not like Eisler very much, as we will see in a later episode. Eisler had just given a lecture on Orpheus at the Varberg Library in Hamburg, for an audience of philosophers, art historians, classicists, and other intellectuals. At the time, A.B. Varberg was convalescing in the sanitarium after having had a nervous breakdown in 1918, and so his former secretary, Fritz Saxel, and his wife, Mary, were keeping the library going in his absence. Eisler was enthusiastic about the library and the reception he had in Hamburg, but Fritz Saxel told me about the incident in which Eisler had been involved in Udine 14 years ago. Apparently he did not want to take anything away, but wanted to study it in Vienna for a short while, 
and returned to it after he had finished his research. The whole story overshadows Eisler's academic career, and he feels totally isolated. At his 1907 trial, the mysterious Augusto Meyer, testifying in his defense, described Eisler as a brilliant person who comes every day upon new discoveries in vast fields, and claimed that he was about to discover one of the most obscure points in human history, that is, the genesis of myth. So in the next episode, we'll look at Eisler's researches into myth, beginning with his early work on Orpheus and his 1910 magnum opus, World Cloak and Heavenly Canopy. That's all for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Stephen Beller and Tom Herka. For this episode, the voice of Robert Eisler was provided by Caleb Crawford, with additional voices by Brian Evans and Kiara Ridpath. Throughout the podcast, I have received assistance with engineering, recording, and editing from March Wasileski and Logan Marshall. The music is Shibboleth Beseda, recorded by Ayakum Shapira and his Israeli orchestra. Partial funding has been provided by the Ohio University Humanities Research Fund and the Ohio University Honors Tutorial College Internship Program. Shibboleth <laughs> Passade,